We're in John chapter 4 today. And y'all, I mentioned this a minute ago, that we're coming up, uh, in a couple of weeks, we're coming up on four years uh, as a church, which is very much surreal for me. It's hard to believe. Some of y'all have been here from the beginning. And so, you know, when you start a church, it's kind of like having a baby. Uh, and and all, the, all the trappings that come with that, something that's new, something with lots of potential and possibility, but also a lot of confusion and mess. But I think about the fact, you know, we're not really a baby church anymore, or really even a toddler church. You know, before long, we'll be getting our driver's license, you know, and going off to college, and like Harvest Church is, man, we're, God has been really gracious to us that we're, we're still here, and, and that uh, man, he's, he's brought incredible people to be a part of his mission here. It's just, it's an awesome thing for me to think about, especially as we come up on, on milestones like our anniversary or our birthday. But y'all, I can remember back in the very early stages, of course, before we'd ever taken uh, communion together, met together, Jennifer and I were talking one evening about what, what we're going to name the church, which on one hand is, is, is not a big decision or not that important maybe, but in another way it was. It was very important to us because I was, I was hopeful that whatever we gave the name of the church to be, that it would reflect who we wanted to be, like what our vision, what our mission was going to be, if at all possible. And so we, we talked through a lot of different names. Eventually, we settled on the name Harvest, which I still think is a cool name. But it's, if you've ever wondered why we came to that place, why we wanted to name the church Harvest, it's actually based on the scripture that we're going to study today. And this is something that we try to preach at least once a year, something that Jesus said that gave rise to the name and the mission, the purpose of this church. And so even as, as we come around periodically to preach this text, uh, this is an anchor for us. It's, it's a great scripture all by itself, but it's especially precious to me because this is who I, I aspire to be personally. This is what we want our church to be. And if God should be gracious, if Harvest Church is still here in 50 years, even after we've all moved on, I hope that this is still the anchor for this body of people. This is why we're here. This is why any church exists. It's for the sake of the harvest. And so we looked at John 4 last week, the first part of this story. Jesus encounters a woman at a well, a Samaritan woman at the well right outside of the town in which she lived. So let me just give a quick recap if you weren't here. Uh, Jesus and his disciples are passing through the land of Samaria, and it's lunchtime. Jesus is tired. He's famished. So he sits down to rest by the well outside of the village while his disciples run into town to try to buy some food. Well, then a woman, all by herself, comes out to the well to draw water, and then Jesus asks her for a drink. Now, this woman is stunned that Jesus would begin this conversation with her. He's breaking all sorts of unwritten rules in speaking with her. This is, this is a person, this woman, who is very low on the social ladder. She was a Samaritan. She was a woman. She was also a moral outcast. She was a woman who had been married five times already. She was living with a man who was not her husband. So even among her own people, she would have been pushed to the edges of a good moral society. There's no way a self-respecting religious man would have had a conversation with a person like her. And yet here Jesus is. He breaks every barrier. He goes straight to her not just to converse, but to offer her salvation. It's what he calls living water. It's a gift so gracious, so abundant, that only God himself could give it. And so the woman finally says to him, okay, okay, 
Well, when Messiah comes, he'll explain all these deep things. He'll show us the way. And Jesus looks at her and says, I, the one speaking to you, am he. It's an incredible story. But at this point, the story's only half over. And so what we just saw last week, what I just recapped for us, it's a very clear picture of the fact that Jesus came into the world to save sinners and to make us his disciples. Yes. But here in the second half of the story, we see something that is related, something that is meant to go with that great truth. It's that Jesus also calls us as his disciples into that same mission. It's not just his mission that we admire from afar, but it's his mission that we get to be a part of. So watch, watch how it happens here. This is John chapter 4, beginning in verse 27. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men there, Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to Jesus. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now let's catch up here because a lot's going on. The woman leaves. As soon as the disciples come, she drops her water pot and runs into town to spread the news. To anybody who will listen, come see a man who knows everything about me. Could this be the Christ? Well, the townspeople are intrigued enough, seemingly a a fairly large group perhaps, they're intrigued enough to listen to this woman's short testimony and follow her back out of town toward the well, toward this man. Well, meanwhile, the disciples, they've brought lunch. And their primary motivation here is to get famished, tired, hungry Jesus taken care of. That's noble, right? So they're trying to shove food in his face. But Jesus, on his part, isn't hungry. Whatever appetite he already he had before, he doesn't have anymore, it seems. He's already full, and he tells us why. He says, I have food to eat that you don't know about. Now, y'all, if you've been with us going through John, you've probably picked up on this pattern. So often, Jesus says spiritual things that people can't fathom in the moment. They, they think he's talking about something practical, tangible. In this case, food. Right? They don't understand the spiritual dimension of what Jesus is saying. They're thinking... You know, somebody brought him a Lunchable or something while we were gone, and he's not hungry anymore. But Jesus is trying to communicate something much deeper than what meets the eye for his disciples. And y'all, not just for them, but for us, I I hope that this will stir our hearts as we see the power of his words. Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What does Jesus mean when he says, that's, that's my food? Well, y'all, we, we know this to be true about food. Food is necessary. It's essential. We've got to have it to live and survive. Food is what sustains us. It, it fills us. It fuels us and energizes us. So we don't treat food as something optional. We treat food as something essential. And so think about it in those terms. When Jesus says, my food 
my necessary food is to do the Father's will. That is what fills me, what sustains me, what fuels me, my very reason for living. My essential purpose is to accomplish His work, to fulfill God's will. And so Jesus is communicating something that that is for Him ultimate. It's not on the side. He doesn't say, my dessert. If there's any leftover time. No, my essential purpose is this. Okay, well, what is it then? What is this will, this work, that's so essential to Jesus? It's the very thing he was just doing in conversation with this woman. That's why he's satisfied and filled in that moment. He's just done it. Jesus came to give life to those who are spiritually dead. He said it himself in Luke 19, the story of Zacchaeus. Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Earlier, a few weeks ago, we saw it from John 3. Jesus said the Son did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. In 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul says, this is a trustworthy statement worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This was his necessary food. Now, you, I hope, have heard this message before. We preach this message every Sunday here at Harvest Church. But I want want you to consider, if it's possible to put ourselves in the disciples' sandals for a moment, just how disarming this would have been for them. They surely understood by now that Jesus came with a mission and purpose of grace, that he was miraculously endowed with God's power. They understood some things about him, but this was a little bit beyond their perspective. It was where they were, and it was with whom Jesus was speaking. Remember now where the disciples are. Jesus has brought them into the land of Samaria. They are surrounded by Samaritans. These are the kinds of people that good Jewish boys and girls were taught to avoid. These are the outsiders, morally, religiously, in every other way. The Samaritans were considered unclean and not to be touched, not to be related to and with. And so the fact that Jesus has the disciples in Samaria to begin with, that's got to make them feel icky. They want to get through and get out as, as quickly as possible, but Jesus has them planted there on purpose to show them why he came. Jesus did not come simply to save or to enlighten, to help out the good folks, the religious, moral, upright people. That was the assumption. Those are the people God likes and favors. Those are the people Jesus came to help. It's the good people, right? Not these people. This is just a necessary path to get where we're going. We can't stay here. But do you see what Jesus is communicating to them? That he came to save the lowly, the immoral, the outsider, the foreigner, anybody that we in our own legalism might exclude, Jesus says, no, they're in by grace. Remember how the disciples, when they showed up with lunch, they were appalled that Jesus was speaking with a woman, a Samaritan woman at that. And yet Jesus is trying to communicate here, she's precisely the kind of person I've come to save. Not because she was worthy when she came to me, but precisely the opposite. You don't have to be worthy in this case. I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. This is my necessary food. And so let's, you know, we we talked about this at length last week, but just as a recap, this woman 
was about as low down on the social ladder as a person can get, as low on the religious ladder as you can be. And yet this story is here to show us that nobody's so low down that they're beyond the reach of God's grace. Nobody's so far gone that God in his mercy cannot save. And so why wasn't Jesus hungry? He said, because I have food to eat that you don't know about. My food is to accomplish God's great work. Y'all, if any of us in this room are Christians now, this is why. Because Jesus Christ entered in and made it his absolute essential and necessary work to seek and to save us. Isn't that awesome? Now, that's amazing enough on its own that Jesus communicates his sense of mission and purpose, but then he does something that might be even more unexpected, more so than just speaking with a, with a kind of person he shouldn't have been engaged with, right, in the minds of the disciples. Now he's going to actually transcend their categories altogether. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, this is my necessary food. Okay, great. But now he's going to show them that it's meant to be theirs as well. The mission that Jesus came to fulfill is a mission that we are all included in. And that's what happens next. Verse 35, Jesus says to his disciples, Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Now, real quickly, none of us have to be farmers to, to, to have this sense of wisdom and perception. If you drive by farmland and it's barren, it's low to the ground, you can say, well, the harvest is still a long way off, right? I don't have to be a farmer to know. That's what Jesus is communicating. This is common sense stuff, right? But then he says this, Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. What does he mean? He's talking about a different kind of harvest here. The harvest, y'all, is a metaphor for the people who will come to faith in Jesus and receive life in his name. The harvest is the great group of people that will be saved and will become disciples of Jesus. The ingathering of people from all tribes, tongues, and nations, from all over the world, saved by God's grace, those who have faith in him. That's the, the great harvest. Okay. Well, why is Jesus mixing metaphors now? He started with living water last week, and then he went to food, and now he's talking about harvest. Is he trying to be confusing? No, he's trying to show us just how precious this is, not just for him, but for you and me. Think about what's happening, right? We've got two plot lines now in the story. The woman has left when the disciples came. You almost forget about her because Jesus starts talking to them. But what has she been doing? She left her water pot, she ran into town, and she started pleading with the people. You've got to come see this man. He told me everything. Remember this woman's reputation. Remember her way of life. I'm sure the people in the town were like, wait a minute, everything? He told you everything? All five husbands, right? This woman, this is a woman who could have easily kept things undercover, and maybe she would have been motivated to do that. She doesn't want people to know that somebody's just exposed her in all of her sin and regret. But that's not on her mind. She goes in and just, anybody who will listen, you've got to come see him for yourself. You've got to come hear this man. Could this be the Christ? Two plot lines that are about to converge. When Jesus says to his disciples, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are ripe and ready for harvest, y'all, it's almost certain that Jesus 
was pointing his disciples back toward the town where at that very moment the people were coming to see him. Lift up your eyes and look. The harvest is here. This is not just figurative, not just spiritual language. These are the people that are walking out to them right now at the well. These are the people that I've come to save, Jesus says. And now you get to participate. Look at verse 36. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. So Jesus now, he's taking his disciples, and he's likening them, he's comparing us to sowers and reapers. And again, you don't have to be a farmer to understand the simplicity of this language. To sow is to plant. And very simply, what Jesus has in mind here is sowing, planting, speaking the good news of the gospel, sharing the grace of Jesus with other people. That's what it means to sow. And then reaping means seeing that person, possibly, come to faith in Christ and receive salvation. Now, the sower and the reaper are not always the same person. And we know that from perhaps our own testimony, that there may have been in your life many different people who taught you the word of God, who planted a little seed of the gospel, and only later on down the road did you become a Christian. Maybe you've had that experience as one who planted that word in another. They're not always the same person, Jesus says, but they rejoice together because of what the outcome is, that the sowing and the reaping are all for the great harvest of God's grace in saving those who receive him by faith. So some sow, others reap. Some share the gospel, others see the gospel come to fruit, he says. Now think about what that means. Very simple language, very simple application. But think of, y'all, this should blow our minds, that the God of the universe actually makes us partners with him in his mission for the world. God, he doesn't have to do this. He could do it any way he wanted. But he actually makes you and me partners, active harvesters in his great harvest. Y'all, if if you've ever had young children, you've ever been a young child, you might remember this in your childhood. There were certain things in your house that were off limits, dangerous things, sharp knives, chainsaws, power tools, stuff that you wanted to touch and that you were just sure you could operate, but your parents wouldn't let you because they loved you. If you were three or four years old, perhaps, they would say, listen, now they wouldn't say it like this, but here's what they meant. You don't have the coordination or the strength or the wisdom or the experience to operate this. I do. So you can't use this butcher knife to cut your apple as much as you'd like to do it, and you're sure you could. Maybe you could, but you won't because I won't allow you to do that. You're not of age, right? That's called good parenting, right? Well, now this makes sense to me, and this is why this verse stuns me. Wouldn't it make sense that of all the things only Jesus could do, saving people, sharing the gospel, building up his great harvest to eternal life, 
all the great things that only Jesus should be able to do, wouldn't he keep us at arm's length and say, y'all listen, I'll take care of the spiritual heavy lifting. I'll deal in the dangerous stuff. Y'all just, you know, organize a church softball team or something. You know, do something that do something that doesn't require a lot of spirituality. I'm Jesus, I'll take care of it. But that's not what he does. Jesus is taking his necessary food, his ultimate purpose and mission, and he brings us in on it. He lets us handle it. He entrusts it to us. You sow, you reap. When when Jesus rises from the dead, and before he ascends to the Father in Matthew 28, Jesus famously gives his disciples the great commission. Y'all, the great co-mission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus said. Now you go and make disciples of all the nations. The authority is mine, but now I'm calling you to live it out. I'm calling you to do ultimately what I came to achieve. It's now your work. Now, of course, we understand we can't save anybody. We're not the saviors in this scenario. Only Jesus can do that. But he entrusts to us the sharing, the sowing, and he promises that we will get to see the reaping and we'll rejoice in it together. I say this again. God didn't have to do it like this, but he chose to. He chose to make us his farmers, his ambassadors, his messengers to the world. And so if we're wondering, okay, well, well, who is qualified then to do what Jesus is calling people to do? Well, the answer, again, is in the story. Where do the sowers and the reapers come from? Where do these planters and harvesters come from? Well, they come from the harvest, right? Right? If, you, uh, if a person becomes a Christian, they're part of the fruit of God's harvest, yes. But, y'all, when you become a Christian, Jesus doesn't just bring you in. He delights to send you back out. See, some of us, it, it, and, and I, I always had this perception myself growing up, this is what the pastor's supposed to do. This is what the missionaries do. The people who go to, you know, who get seminary training and go live in a foreign country and commit their lives to this kind of stuff, that's what it means to sow and reap. This, there's, a, there's kind of an elite level of Christian that belongs in that category. And the rest of us, we're just, you know, we're supporters. We're encouragers. We do the best we can. And, y'all, that is not the message here. Yes, there's a unique sense of, of calling and equipping that, that certain people have. Yeah, I don't, we don't diminish that. But everybody's in on this. Jesus is not calling a select few or an elite, you know, Navy SEAL group of Christians to do this. Jesus is talking about the privilege and the responsibility for every Christian. If you've been brought in as good harvest fruit, if you've been saved by his grace, he now delights to send you back out to share it with others. And so if you're the kind of person, when you think of sharing your faith, when you think of of sowing and reaping, it just flattens you. All of your insecurities and fears rise to the surface. And we, we, there's all sorts of hurdles that might stand in our way when we think about this, y'all. And, and in our mind, they're totally legit. I mean, who am I? I don't know enough. Who am I based on my past and the things I've done? I'm discredited. I can't be a credible witness for Jesus. I'll just be a hypocrite. 
I, I can't live up to the standard of all that he calls me to. So they're they're going to poke holes in me personally and in everything I say. I can't, I can't share my faith. People don't want to hear that stuff, especially in our culture the way it is now. I can't share my faith. I'm going to come across as judgmental and bigoted. Those seem like awfully high hurdles when we say it like that. And you may know that in your heart, how it feels. But y'all, take heart here. Take courage in how the story unfolds. Those anxieties and insecurities may be very real, and they may dominate your thinking. But look at how the story unfolds. The disciples get the lesson. But who's living out the application? The disciples haven't done anything in this story. Who's the person who's got, um, who's out of breath right now from running back into town? Who's the person who's put their um, reputation even more on the line? Somebody who's already been discounted, discredited, and who now sounds, frankly, probably insane. Come see him. Come see him. You'll never believe it. It's the woman. The disciples are getting the lesson, but it's the woman who's actually living it out. She's the one who's actually sowing the seed in this story. She leaves her water pot, she runs back into her town, and she says, come see this man for yourselves. Could this be the Christ? She's the one, quite literally, leading her neighbors and friends and family to Jesus. And so if there's any insecurity in you, in me, about sharing our faith, none of us should be any less secure than she was. None of us can, can possibly have a life any more discredited socially or religiously than she did. And none of that stood in her way because she had an encounter with the Savior and she simply wanted everyone else to see him too. And y'all look at the outcome. Look what happens. Verse 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. This is like the third or fourth time I'm going to say it, but I just want to keep hammering this nail. Remember who this woman is. She's at the bottom of the ladder in every way. She's an immoral, surely uneducated outcast. Even among her own neighbors, she would have been an outcast. How could a person like her be a credible witness for Jesus? And yet she's our example in this story. She's our hero. Not the disciples. They'll get there. They'll get there. But not here. In John chapter 4, it's this woman. And I want to say this again to encourage us. She didn't know anything. She knew almost nothing at all. It's a, there's a very, even if, even if you're not, if, if you consider yourself pretty ignorant when it comes to the things of the Bible, I'm willing to bet you still know more than she did. If you see yourself as discredited, as hypocritical, you haven't really lived up to the way you think you should, you know you should, you're still, I'm sure, higher up on the ladder than she was. We're, we run out of excuses 
when we come to this story because here's a woman who was not only ignorant but was living a life that was entirely shameful within the context of her own culture and yet she did not hesitate when she encountered the living God. She ran into town and beckoned everyone who would listen. You've got to come see him for yourselves. And because she pointed her neighbors to Christ, a great many of them came to believe. And y'all, part of, part of what I love about this story is it shows the simplicity of the sowing. Maybe you don't know everything you'd like to know or think, or think you should. Maybe your life isn't as crystal you know, clear and see-through. Maybe you've got stuff that you're ashamed of. We all do. Your pastor doesn't know all that he ought to know. Look at what this woman does. She honestly, transparently, urgently, lovingly does what she can to get other people in his presence. It would have been very easy for this woman to feel the shame of being exposed when Jesus pointed out her marriages, her shame, her sin. She could have slinked back into town and kept quiet about it forever. I'm not going there. I'm not uncovering that all over again. But that was of no concern to her because the living water Jesus offered is what she began to taste And if this could be the Christ, then I can't keep it to myself. Does my evangelistic fire burn that brightly? Does yours? And if not, why not? Because, y'all, the truth is, if we're honest with ourselves, her story is the same as ours. We were all lost and far from God, and yet we were loved and pursued by Jesus Christ. We were dead in our sins, but we've been made alive by his great mercy because Jesus died on the cross to reconcile us to God, not just to help us improve and be better human beings. He came to forgive us so that he might bring us to God, so that Jesus Christ might remove every single barrier that we had established that kept us alienated from the Father. Jesus has moved it out of the way and has brought us near. So that means that just like this woman, he has made us his harvest fruit. He has made us the delight of his heart. Jesus says that all of heaven celebrates when one sinner repents and comes to faith. And so heaven has celebrated on our behalf at some point, if you're a Christian. And now we get to go out and play a part in the rejoicing, the sowing and the reaping. Y'all, I don't want, for myself, I don't want this woman's reputation. I'm sure you don't either. I don't want her regrets. I don't want her sins. I don't want her place on the social ladder. None of us would envy those things about her. And yet, if I'm honest, and I hope in a healthy way, I envy her urgency, her zeal, her refusal to allow her exposure, her sin, to to cover her in shame and slink away, but to run into town and say, you won't believe it. I think I've met the Christ. That's what I want. I want to be like her. And and you should too. Y'all, one day we'll meet her in heaven. And she will not be on the bottom of the ladder there. There is no such ladder. She'll have a place at the table as one who received grace 
in spite of all that she'd done. It didn't matter because Jesus gave her living water. Our very first Sunday as a church, this was May the 7th, 2017, I, I, I preached this scripture. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote myself here. That's dangerous, I realize. <laughs> but I just thought it would be worth quoting here because it hadn't changed. Here's what I said at the end of that day. I'll say it again today as we close. If Harvest Church ever amounts to anything at all, if we ever become a healthy, growing, vibrant, God-honoring church, it's going to depend on this. The Holy Spirit of God putting in us, all of us, a burning heart to see His mission fulfilled. A hunger for the true food that satisfies to sustain us and fuel us the will of God and His mission for the world. Y'all, listen, it's not enough for us to simply be knowledgeable about the Bible. It's important, but it's not enough. It's not enough for us to be good, nice, moral people. That's nice too, but that's not enough. In that case, we're just a nice, moral, clean, pretty church on the corner. But that's not enough. God has called us to be a people who joyfully sow and reap together. The abundant life we receive from him is meant to propel us outward into lives of great fruitfulness. Not just fruit that we enjoy for ourselves, but fruitfulness that we get to participate in. And so Harvest Church is not just a name we happen to like. It is our mission. It is our vision. In a single word, Jesus said, lift up your eyes and look. The fields are ripe and ready for harvest. Ridgeland, Madison, Jackson, Canton, Clinton, Flowood, Brandon, Pearl, Mississippi, this country, our world, the time for harvest is right now. May God give us the grace to join him in his mission. Let's pray. Father, I'm asking you this morning that you would put this on my heart and ours. Anyone, anyone who receives your grace, who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ, may be a great gospel witness. Lord, where we put up hurdles, our own insecurities, our regrets, our sense of hypocrisy that we can't measure up, our fear of, of the opinions of others, whatever we may put up in the way, Father, would you this morning show us the beauty of this story? Anyone, including this Samaritan woman, can be a great gospel witness, can sow the seed and rejoice even to reap. Father, if you have so loved us, if you have, as, as Stephen prayed earlier, you have not withheld your son from us, you gave him over. And so now we can trust, Lord, that if you, if you gave us Jesus, 
And if you sent him to die for us, Lord, that you would not withhold any good thing, everything, Lord, that you've promised you give, including words to speak, including courage, and including a heart that breaks for those who do not know you so that we might enter into the harvest and joyfully plant seeds of grace. Father, give us, give us this heart today. Um, let Harvest Church, if, we, if, if, we, if there's nothing else that we do at all, let us do this wholeheartedly. And let everything fall where it may. Lord, bring us into your harvest as those who receive you and now delight to make you known. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.